This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. If you'd like to support the work we're doing, please visit the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Counterspin, We the Podcast, Decode DC, the Tom Hartman Program, The Young Turks, and The David Pakman Show. CNN's State of the Union discussed the death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia February 14th and the opening that it leaves on the court, with Washington Post associate editor Bob Woodward laying out what he called the potential minefield posed by a liberal Supreme Court appointment to, quote, everyone, including Hillary Clinton and the Obama White House, close quote. His reasoning, Woodward said, quote, because it was a conservative justice who died, who's going to be replaced, the argument by the Democrats is, gee, we're going to put a fifth liberal on the Supreme Court. The Republican nominee can go out and say, we are going to preserve the balance, close quote. As Steve Rendell noted for FAIR.org, this is a unique understanding of the word balance, meaning a court with a conservative majority. That's without addressing the assumption that the other four are best described as liberal. Though it was framed as a Republican viewpoint, the idea was pretty clearly embraced by Woodward, who explained how most undecideds and independents would view the appointment of anyone but a conservative as a radical move. Quote, in the world now of real voters, I think it is the persuadable voter or the independent who's likely in a positive way to respond to the idea that, yeah, let's preserve the balance. Let's not do anything radical, close quote. Woodward closed the segment citing a 1970s Washington Star headline on the occasion of Justice William Douglas's death, which he claimed said that everyone, left, right, and center, is going to miss Justice Douglas. I think it's the same for Justice Scalia, said Woodward. remind people that this is, again, not exceptional. The Senate has considered nominees to the Supreme Court in presidential election years six times in the last century, and including Justice Kennedy, who sits on the court right now, who was confirmed uh, in the last year of President Reagan's uh, uh, presidency. And therefore, this is something the American public gets deeply that this is something that the Senate needs to and must do. And if you take it even further, I mean, Senator Grassley, who's chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, is running for election this year. So he's in the last year of his six-year term. So maybe he shouldn't be able to vote or hold hearings or do whatever he's doing because he's in the last year of his term. It's just absurd. It just doesn't hold water, and the American people get it. Well, the one good thing is that they only have done this with the Supreme Court nominees, right? (laughs) (laughs) Why do you have? Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, the truth is... Yeah, that's... Yeah, well, that is... absolutely untrue. And that's what I alluded to before in saying that this has been a long-term strategy of, of limiting this president's influence on the federal judiciary by blocking his judicial nominees. You know, in 2013, 
Senate Republicans filibustered consecutively three nominees to the D.C. Court of Appeals based not at all on any objection to the nominees in particular, based solely on their desire to keep the president's nominees off the federal courts. And this is an intentional strategy of hamstringing our federal courts as well as our agencies and simply trying to undermine the president for the sake of their own political agenda. This so-called conservative movement, whatever, uh, has used the Supreme Court to further their agenda. But it seems like those folks who want a fair court that, you know, takes cases and makes decisions on a fair basis, you know, haven't really used the court as well. It seems to me that way. You know, what could Americans gain if, if the people who really want a fair court got better at fighting for working families through the Supreme well, Court. Let me say this. I mean, you, in terms of what working families and everyday Americans have to lose or gain in the courts, the, the short answer is everything. But you know, just to back up, I think it's important to realize that while progressives tend to view the courts as a pathway to justice correctly, the right wing views the courts as a pathway to power. And that has been their view for at least the last 40 or 50 years. And they have been extremely effective as using the courts as institutions to consolidate their own power. And they do it by investing tremendous amount of energy and resources and strategy in getting the judges who will advance their own policy agendas. And I think we need to, we need to care about who's on the courts. Caroline? So I was just going to um, pick up on what Kyle um, said, which was very right. And one of the cases we haven't mentioned yet, which we should put on the table, is Bush v. Gore. Please. So talking about consolidating power, and if you look at this this string of cases that followed Bush v. Gore, including Citizens United and Shelby County, the pathway to power is very clear. Claim the presidency, eviscerate the ability to control the amount that billionaires and big corporations spend in elections, and make it harder and harder for people of color who've always who've been had faced such barriers in voting, make it harder for them to vote. And it's a trifecta right there. You don't need much more to control uh, the, all the branches of government. Uh, and so I think people really need to pay attention to what the Supreme Court has been doing in terms of it's not just laying out a roadmap. They're actually traveling down the road. Uh, and we need to do a lot to catch up. I think, as Kyle and Marge have both said, there is so much at stake in terms of what working people have on the line in terms of what the Supreme Court does. Right. And, and I think I think you raised a really important question, because I think it's probably true that right now progressives are pretty careful about using the court because the court is stacked against um, the American people. We just did a report looking at 85 of very closely decided 5-4 decisions during the entire ten last 10 years of the Roberts Alito Court um, and going through issue by issue. And you see time and time and time again that the 5-4 majority is stacking the law and the Constitution against the American people. So you want to be careful about <laughs> figuring out which cases to bring to the court because you don't want the court to... to, to to, to make bad law. And that absolutely means that, that what my colleagues are saying is that progressives have to focus on it, on, on getting involved in the fights over who sits on these courts. Absolutely. It's really, really important. It matters who the judges and justices are. And we have to embrace that as part of our agenda every bit as much as the far right does. Caroline? Well, so the American Constitution Society, one of the things that we do is try and, and encourage and support people who want to get uh, into the business of the rule of law, who want to become judges or academics or lawyers. Uh, and so, you know, we really need to build a strong pipeline of new people who can come in and take those seats on the bench because 
You know, President Obama was pilloried early in his um, presidency for talking about the role of judges, including empathy. But honestly, what he was talking about was understanding what real people face in real life situations. And judges need to have that. They need they should come from a broader background and not just be people who come out of a corporate law practice or who have represented only companies, but instead know what real people face. Let me make a suggestion on who some of those people, potential judges in the pipeline uh, need to be. Uh, we Alliance for Justice did a, a report analyzing all of the president's federal judicial nominees, President Obama's. And the data is striking that nearly 90 percent were either corporate lawyers or prosecutors before being nominated to a judgeship, whereas approximately three or four percent had served as attorneys at public interest organizations. Federal prosecutors outnumber public defenders by more than three to one. Um, this is a, a systemic problem in judicial selection that lawyers who have had careers uh, representing people with everyday struggles um, and standing up for their the rights of everyday people uh, simply aren't being considered enough uh, when it comes to judici- judicial selection, and that has an impact on the outcomes of cases. So does it kind of matter who's on the Supreme Court? Oh, yeah. It kind, oh, of, yeah. kind of does. Yeah. Kind, of, kind of a big deal for that. And, and is it, does it really matter for the Lily Ledbetters of this world, the workaday Americans who bust their tail to try to put food on the table and just want to get a fair hearing in court about their core economic issues like their pensions? That's a, a great question. I, I really want to zero in on what's at stake for working families when yeah, it comes please. to the Supreme Court. Because there was a time in our country early 20th century, where the Supreme Court imposed what what FDR called a a no-man's land of economic regulations. And they invalidated things like minimum wage Hmm. laws, um, uh, workplace safety laws, uh, restrictions on hours that employers could demand of their workers, child Child labor labor laws, as unconstitutional. Um, And it wasn't until uh, finally uh, 1937, where some of those decisions were overruled, um, and, and Federal Labor Relations Act, for example, was upheld, the foundational law that guarantees the rights of workers to organize. And there is no secret that the right wing in this country has an agenda to go back to that time in our constitutional history, uh, where all of the gains of the the progressive uh, gains of the last 20th century will be entirely wiped out. They want to go back to what's commonly known as the Lochner era, where corporations can't be regulated at all. Workers have no rights. There's no workplace safety guarantees. Uh, there's no right to organize. And when we think about the, the several vacancies that we anticipate on the Supreme Court in the very near future, that is precisely what's at stake. And it's no coincidence that that's the last time in our history income inequality was about as bad as it is right now. And that's what the corporate right-wing agenda is going after on the Supreme Court. Right, and I just have to echo what Kyle was saying, which is that that the corollary to the advancing corporate rights is the diminishing worker rights uh, in this court. That's the other side of the coin, isn't it? It's the other side of the coin, and you can see that we've had the Harris case, which dealt with the rights of home care workers, uh, making it harder and harder for them to come together to lift up their voices to get a fair wage, and the Friedrichs case, which is now in front of the court, which would affect the ability of public employees to come together and again to, to argue for a better wage and better treatment in the workplace and to the Roberts court that has been something that they don't want to see instead they want to allow billionaires and major corporations to run the government it's time to ponder what we've become in this company
By the time President Obama nominated Merrick Garland to replace Justice Antonin Scalia on the Supreme Court, today I am nominating Chief Judge Merrick Brian Garland to join the Supreme Court. Partisan combat had been going on for weeks already, since moments after Scalia died. One more liberal justice, and we will see our fundamental rights taken away. We will see the court mandating unlimited abortion on demand. It's like all the stars are aligning in big blinking arrows to point out to us that what just happened here and, and this issue of the future of the Supreme Court, this is a really freaking big deal. This is now ideological warfare of the highest order. Conventional wisdom, that tiresome old wench, says that this blatantly partisan fight to replace Scalia shows yet again how low our politics can go, how polarized and petty Washington has become. Well, it reveals something else just as important, maybe even more important, but something we don't even notice anymore. There's something wrong with your democracy when the death of a single person can have that much consequence for the future of the country. Welcome to Decode DC. I'm Dick Meyer, sitting in this week for Jimmy Williams. One individual, one Supreme Court justice, is so important because the Supreme Court is so important. It is the Supreme Court that has the final, definitive say in our democracy over what is constitutional and what isn't. That's not something we even argue about, except if you're Larry Kramer. <laughs> so, you know... Uh, gosh, I almost don't know where to start. Larry was a clerk for Justice William Brennan in the 1980s and then was a professor at various top law schools for many years before becoming the dean of the Stanford Law School. Now he's the president of the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation. His book, The People Themselves, is considered one of the most important histories of the changing role of the court in American history. So welcome, Larry. I'm sorry to make you sit through that introduction of yourself. You know, thank you. It was much nicer than uh, anyone but my mom would believe. Well, I'm happy to be in that company. Anyway, Larry and I exchanged some emails, and I was struck, really, by how frustrated Larry was by the conventional wisdom and the, the whole debate about the Supreme Court and replacing Scalia, by how we're lacking the perspective to see the really deep controversies and the most philosophic questions. All right, so here's a question. Is it fair to say that it is completely uncontroversial in politics today that the Supreme Court has final say in terms of what is constitutional? Uh, I, I think it's a fair statement that that is the way it is seen today, yes. And has that always been the case in our history? I mean, is this a – I don't think there's a sense that that's a controversial view. Right. What's one of the most amazing things is not only has that not always been the case, but in fact it was only the case relatively recently. 
So the original conception of the Constitution and the original conception of the court absolutely did not have that role at all. There, there was a notion that the court would interpret the Constitution, but not the notion that its say would be final over the other branches or over the community at large. So across most of American history, a big part of the debate was over who has final say over the meaning of the Constitution. It actually was a debate that was framed, you can think of it in left-right terms or progressive conservative terms. The conservative position has always been to favor judicial authority. It's not surprising. It's kind of built into the nature of conservatism. Although, again, what counts as conservative or liberal has changed over time. But And the progressive position, which is to say the popular politics position, was always no, that it had to rest out in the community ultimately, that we had to have final say over the meaning of our own most important laws. And what really happened around the time of beginning, say, with Brown, be the Board of Education, and through the 1960s was for the first time in American history, you got a progressive activist court that was doing things that people on the left liked. In a unanimous decision, the nine Supreme Court justices ruled racial segregation in publicly supported schools to be unconstitutional, declaring that it denied equal opportunity. And so they flipped on the issue of judicial authority and the right, the conservatives did not. And so the dispute changed in that period from a debate over who has final say over the Constitution to a kind of implicit agreement that it was the court. And so the fights that we have today, how do you interpret the Constitution, suddenly became what it was all about. And really, this all culminates in the Bork hearings. But I today announce my intention to nominate United States Court of Appeals Judge Robert H. Bork. In 1987, President Ronald Reagan nominated Robert Bork to the Supreme Court. Bork was a famous conservative legal scholar who talked openly about rolling back some of the civil rights and abortion rights rulings of prior courts. The battle over his confirmation was the bloodiest ever. It is hard to understand why your nomination would generate controversy. The answer is found in one word, which is tragic in this judicial context, and that word is politics. And the Senate ultimately rejected him. In Robert Bork's America, there is no room at the end for blacks and no place in the Constitution for women. And in our America, there should be no seat on the Supreme Court for Robert Bork. I mean, that's really the, the moment in popular political culture where the idea that, oh my God, who we pick on the Supreme Court is going to be determinative of our important rights becomes accepted explicitly, you know, in the polity at large. And that's why those hearings were so dynamic and important and, and why now every single Supreme Court nomination is a major political event because we have turned over to them kind of authority that they really never had before that. I mean, certainly I think if you did a poll of Americans, they would believe that the supremacy of the Supreme Court over constitutional law is in the Constitution itself. And we all learned that Marbury versus Madison says that the Supreme Court has final authority over constitutional issues. Tell us a little bit about what's inaccurate about that story that we have. So, you know, the heart of it is the, 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 the whole purpose of the American Revolution was to create a Republican system of government which meant by definition one that rejected monarchical institutions in favor of popular ones. And monarchical didn't mean, you know, a formal monarch only. It meant that kind of authority that was not responsible to the community. In the early stages, there's just no notion of judicial review. The Americans understood that they had a constitutional system even before, you know, before the revolution. And the revolution was largely fought because of claims by Americans that the 
English kept violating the, their constitutions, the British constitution, the American constitutions and the colonies. No one at any time in that process says, oh, you know, does Parliament have the power to tax? Let's go take that to court, right? That concept doesn't even exist at the time, even though those are constitutional disputes, because they're going to be settled in and through politics by the community itself. And there's various devices, you know, through which that's expressed. When the Constitution is written, they don't abandon that idea. They've just fought a revolution in support of it. an action is unconstitutional, then the community had all sorts of ways of rejecting it. Everything from, you know, voting to refusing to prosecute people in juries to, you know, community action and, and so on. So a, a role emerges for the court as one more voice in this, but not the idea that they have the final voice. It's a kind of complicated concept because people want to think somebody has to have final say and the notion that it's out in the community is the one that seems hard for us to grasp today. But for early Americans, that was kind of taken for granted. All of the branches of government were agents that the people delegated power to. And Kramer says that throughout American history, presidents and legislators fought the Supreme Court the same way they fought each other, with power and with politics. So Jefferson threatens to refuse to enforce judgments. So does Jackson. Lincoln actually refuses to enforce Dred Scott and does all sorts of things that the decision said you can't do. Uh, Jefferson has laws passed that effectively punish the court by adding all sorts of onerous procedures to the way they proceed. The Reconstruction Congress slashes the court's jurisdiction and budget, actually, for that matter. One of my favorites, this is court packing. When uh, Lincoln gets elected, Congress increases the size of the court so he can have some justices and get control. When he's assassinated and Johnson becomes president, they cut the size of the court so Johnson won't have that control. Uh, when Ulysses Grant is elected, they increase it again so that he will have that control. Right. So that's court packing. Which happened again in with FDR. Talk about that. So the country goes into the Great Depression. It was panic. Sixteen and a half million shares of stock sold in a single day. Roosevelt is elected, you know, by a very large majority in 1932 with the idea that we need to take some drastic actions to fix the economy. This campaign is more than a contest between two men. It is a contest between two philosophies of government. The Congress is overwhelmingly democratic. And so with support from Congress, he passes a slew of legislation designed to deal with the economic crisis. It all gets to the court in 1935 and 1936, and they strike it all down. And Roosevelt goes public. Not just Roosevelt, by the way, all the members of Congress as well. And they're criticizing the court and pushing back and saying, this is crazy, a bunch of old men from an earlier age who, who just don't understand where the country is and are giving dubious interpretations of the Constitution. They shouldn't have that power. In the middle of this, they pass another round of legislation, you know, modified, but Roosevelt pushes a plan to basically add another justice to the court for everyone who's over, I think it was 70, which would give him enough votes to uphold the legislation. The plan is quite controversial, but before it needs to be ruled on in Congress, before Congress has to actually vote to increase the court by that size, the Supreme Court hands down a decision in which they reverse their earlier decisions and uphold the new New Deal legislation. So at that point, Roosevelt can let the court packing plan die because he's gotten what he needed out of the Supreme Court. 
So, but if something like that happened today, if Obama, for instance, said, well, I don't like the, the ruling in a religious freedom case in Hobby Lobby, we're going to put three more justices on the Supreme Court because this court has gotten out of whack with modern times and it's acting inappropriately. That, that would be, it's unthinkable, right? It's, it would be considered not revolutionary or radical, but crazy. It would, right. But that's what's so interesting to me. So if you take these devices, court packing, budget slashing, jurisdiction stripping, all that. So who's, when has that happened in American history? Well, let's see. Jefferson did it. Jackson did it. Lincoln did it. The Reconstruction Congress did it. Teddy Roosevelt did it. And Franklin Roosevelt did it. That's not exactly a rogues gallery, right? That's generally the most respected presidents across American history and one of the most respected congresses. So here's the paradox. Some of the court's rulings in big cases are intrinsically political or ideological, but it's no longer considered appropriate to challenge the court's authority to have that final say. There will be no second chances when you stand before the judge that day. Because if you try to mess with Texas, the judge will have a final say. Today's episode is sponsored by Casper, the company who makes an obsessively engineered American-made mattress at a shockingly fair price. They've broken into the industry by designing an excellent memory and latex foam mattress that provides resilience and long-lasting supportive comfort, but can be shipped conveniently to your door, bypassing all the showroom markups. Casper mattresses cost a fraction of the industry standard, starting at only $500 for a twin-size mattress and going up to only $950 for king-sized. I've been sleeping on mine now for over a year. I still have no complaints, but if you don't like yours for any reason, they have free painless returns within a 100-day period, so you get more than three whole months to try it out instead of a measly three minutes shopping the old way. As a special offer, you can get $50 off their already low prices toward any mattress purchase and support this show by visiting casper.com best and using the code best at checkout. Terms and conditions apply, and you can also find that URL linked up on my website, but again, it's casper.com slash best, and use the offer code BEST at checkout. Cause when we leave this world and Texas, the judge will have the final say. Hey, yes, the judge will have the final say. Garland, uh, the, the judge that the president has nominated, uh, would be the oldest person nominated to the Supreme Court since Nixon put Lewis Powell on in 1971. Uh, so it's unlikely that he would be 30 years on the court like, uh, like Scalia was. Um, another factor that almost certainly played into the role is Garland's reputation for moderation. He, uh, for example, he, he ruled that, uh, that we could, you know, keep people in Guantanamo that they didn't have habeas corpus rights. That was overturned, by the way, by the Supreme Court in Rasul v. Bush. Uh, he's a former prosecutor. He's a former lawyer for a, for one of the big DC firms here that defends big corporations. So, you know, this is a guy who he's spent, he's been on the DC circuit for 13 years. Uh, his record doesn't suggest that he's the right side of the court, but he's definitely not, this guy's not a liberal. He's, he's a, uh, he's kind of a, a corporatist type. You know, he rules on behalf of corporations. He used to defend corporations. 
And like I said, was a prosecutor. Not the most exciting nomination. But, you know, if the Republicans are right, he's not going to get the job anyway. So he's the sacrificial lamb. And in that case, Obama did good by picking somebody as a sacrificial lamb who, A, looks reasonable to most Republicans. And B, uh, has a day job that he's not going to lose. He's got a lifetime appointment to the Supreme Court or to the uh, D.C. Circuit Court. Uh, he's not going to lose that job. He's the 10th most powerful judge in the United States, and that ain't going away, no matter what the Senate does. So I think the, 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 whole, the whole thing is, uh, is just absolutely fascinating. Yesterday, I told you about uh, Merrick Garland, who is uh, President Obama's nominee for the Supreme Court, uh, being uh, far more conservative uh, than a Democrat should uh, propose. Uh, he is so-called tough on crime, uh, meaning that uh, he's not been very open to criminal justice reform. Throw him away, lock him up, who cares? Uh, not really the right person uh, at this point in time, I think, for the country in that sense. Um, it's a good thing we have an African-American president who understands uh, the, the problems of the country. Uh, but more importantly, I, I was wondering about Citizens United and how he comes out on that. Well, I have some news for you on that. But first, uh, I'm not the only one thinking that Merrick Garland is conservative. Let's go to Fox News and find out how conservative they think he is. But I suggest to you that this is not a win for the president. Judge Garland is the most conservative nominee to the Supreme Court by a Democratic president in the modern era and is put there, in my view, as a nominee to frustrate the process. If he gets on the court, he is not Justice Elena Kagan. He is not Justice Sonia Sotomayor. He does not think about the law the way Barack Obama does. So Barack Obama does not get the opportunity to appoint Antonin Scalia's opposite number. If he does not get on the court, then we're still at a stalemate. So in my view, this is a lose-lose for the president. So your observation is that the president is challenging Republicans. My observation is that the president is more interested in the politics of the process, attempting to pry loose Republicans who actually like Judge Garland and agree with him, than the president is interested in his own a philosophical legacy on the court, which he has in Justices Sotomayor and Kagan. Unfortunately, that's hard to argue with. The uh, president thinks he's being clever by playing politics here, by giving the Republicans, I'm going to quote Andrew uh, Napolitano here one more time. Judge Garland is the most conservative nominee by a Democratic president in the modern era. Oh, that's really clever. Super clever. I'll trick the Republicans. By giving them exactly what they want. <laughs> okay. Now, by the way, Orrin Hatch has said similar things in the past when he confirmed Garland for earlier posts. Uh, said he was the best uh, nominee Republicans could hope for from a Democratic president. Way to make Fox News and huge Republicans happy. Uh, just to play a little bit of politics. That's a brilliant, brilliant move because the reality is he doesn't care about policy. By the way, who's this 
uh, clown Napolitano character. I mean, well, we've shown him before. In this case, he happens to be right, but oftentimes as Fox News, he's comically wrong. Do you know that a former Trump advisor said that that Judge Napolitano uh, would be Trump's first choice for the Supreme Court? I mean, I know he, he says he gets his military advice from generals he sees on TV. So I suppose we shouldn't be surprised by that. But look at this. <laughs> Number one choice for Trump, according to some insiders, for the Supreme Court says, Man, this Garland guy is so wonderfully conservative. Okay, well played. Well, then you say, well, now, Jank, hold on now. Uh, you know, we don't know his full record. Uh, and probably President Obama knows something we don't. Yeah, he knows something you don't. He's not a progressive. He knows it, you don't. <laughs> so how about on the, what I view, and I think a lot of Americans view because of the corruption of the system that affects everything else, the most important issue, uh, money out of politics. So it, it turns out the Chamber of Commerce and uh, a lot of the top business groups are staying out of this fight, meaning they're not going to fight them, meaning, come on, come on, put them on, put them on. Oh, yeah, hold on, let's see what happens with Garland, right? Put them on, put them on, put them on. Uh, because they've seen his rulings and they are pro-corporate. But wait, we have something even more important. Now, Moore is a company with a good story, and they give uh, both sides here. They explain that Garland, in some cases, uh, has voted uh, to for more transparency, at least, in, in money and politics issues. And they cited a couple of small cases that were so obvious. Like, hey, should a government contractor be allowed to donate to the guy who's giving him the contract? No. Wow. Okay. Uh, should we have a little bit more disclosure? Yes. But even Justice Kennedy, who's a conservative, who was the deciding vote in Citizens United, thought we should have disclosure. So I wasn't overly impressed by that, but I was a little bit encouraged. But then you have this devastating fact. There is, they explain, John Light does writing for Moyers. There is one very important case on Garland's record, however, that gives reformers pause. Speech Now versus FEC, a decision that, along with Citizens United, made possible the current proliferation of super PACs. Citizens United did away with limits on how much third-party groups could spend so long as they didn't coordinate with campaigns. Speech Now allowed donors to give as much as they wanted to political action committees, again, so long as those groups didn't coordinate with the campaigns. The decisions, both decided in 2010, were two sides of the same coin. Garland joined the unanimous decision on Speech Now, written by Judge David B. Sentel. That speech now case is so much more important than the other stuff that plays around the edges. Speech now works in tandem with Citizens United to allow unlimited money to pour into politics. He voted in favor of it. This is the brilliant move by Barack Obama to get the Republicans. Oh, I'll get you. I'll get a guy who totally agrees with you on enormously important issues. And we'll continue the corruption of our system. Oops, how did that happen? Don't forget that Barack Obama also benefited from this system. He won the presidency twice in this system, not another system. He had to change placards. But why the hell would he want to change a system that made him one of the most powerful men on earth and soon one of the richest men on earth? He doesn't want to change that system. So he goes, oh, yes, I will play politics. And I will put up Garland. Oh, golly gee, he wants more money in politics. <laughs> oh, yeah, vote for a Democratic president because the Supreme Court is so important.
Am I against Garland on the Supreme Court? Bet your bottom dollar on it if you haven't already given it to a politician. Can we expect better than this? Well, under this system, apparently not. So the corruption rolls on. But we know better, we know As an anti-consumerism advocate, I would like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and get everything you can get used from a place like Craigslist. You will save yourself a boatload of money and reduce the endless flow of new stuff getting shipped across the world because that seems more convenient than meeting a neighbor. Failing that, try a locally owned small business. Failing that, if you're left with no choice other than to buy something from a place like Amazon, then at least there's a way you can do it and support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestofleft.com and shop as you normally would. Better yet, click through on the link to your country's Amazon store only once and then bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumption altogether, consuming sustainably, or at least consuming in a subversive way. If you try to create the ideal moderate Supreme Court nominee in a laboratory, it would be hard to do better than Judge Merrick Garland. That's what the New York Times editorial board declared March 16th, describing Obama's nominee as, quote, a deeply respected federal appellate judge with an outstanding intellect, an impeccable legal record, and the personal admiration of Republicans and Democrats, close quote. The Washington Post was likewise effusive, calling Garland unusually well-respected across the ideological spectrum, an ideal nominee in these divided times. And that seemed to be the consensus in corporate media. Obama has picked the ideal nominee. But wait a minute. As a candidate in 2008, Obama praised a Supreme Court ruling that affirmed that prisoners had a right to habeas corpus, regardless of where they were held, calling that, quote, a rejection of the Bush administration's attempt to create a legal black hole at Guantanamo, close quote. But that ruling was a reversal of an appeals court ruling that Garland supported. So if you're glad that the Supreme Court rejected the legal black hole theory, why put another judge there who embraced it? As the SCOTUS blog noted when the former prosecutor was considered a potential nominee back in 2010, quote, Judge Garland rarely votes in favor of criminal defendants' appeals of their convictions, close quote, often splitting from his more liberal colleagues. As many such issues now split 4-4 among the current justices, this means that with Garland, the court would often side with the state on criminal justice issues. Well, for many people, including many who voted for Obama, that's far from an impeccable legal record.
President Obama, as we talked about last week extensively, has been moving forward on the replacement for the late Antonin Scalia on the Supreme Court by nominating Merrick Garland to replace him. We have heard all sorts of posturing. There have been six or eight Republican senators who say, I would meet with Merrick Garland, although those meetings would be mostly symbolic. They probably wouldn't go anywhere. We've heard from some on the right, even Orrin Hatch, who said, for example, that somebody like Merrick Garland would be a great choice. Even though President Obama has made that choice, Orrin Hatch now saying, actually, we're not going to be moving forward on that. Mitch McConnell was on Fox News Sunday yesterday talking about this nomination, being interviewed about this nomination by Chris Wallace. And he made what is simultaneously a repulsive and stunning, but not that surprising admission, which is how could Republicans move forward with this nomination when the NRA hasn't signed off on Merrick Garland? And I know what you're saying. Wait a second. The people elect the president who nominates Supreme Court nominees. And then the people elect senators who confirm them. NRA, why does the NRA matter? Oh, it matters, particularly if you're Mitch McConnell. Listen to this. Nominee. So, so final question, just to make it clear. You're saying no consider, no consideration of Judge Garland by this Congress, even if Hillary Clinton wins the election. No consideration by this Congress. You're going to stand firm on that, even in a lame duck session. Yeah, I can't imagine that a Republican majority in the United States Senate would want to confirm in a lame duck session a nominee opposed by the National Rifle Association, the National Federation of Independent Business that represents small businesses that have never taken a position on a Supreme Court appointment before. They're opposed to this guy. I can't imagine that a Republican majority Senate even if it were soon to be a minority, would want to confirm a judge that would move the court dramatically to the left. That's not going to happen. Senator McConnell, thank you. Thanks He's for your literally sticking to his guns on this one, right? I mean, confirm it. Wait, wait, wait a second, Chris. You're saying Republicans are going to confirm a nominee that hasn't been okayed by the National Rifle Association, the biggest pro-gun lobby in the country? I just don't see that happening, Chris. Wow. Wow. That's that's really sad, really sad. I and this really reminds me of this season of House of Cards, too, yeah. because the NRA, uh, they, they show the NRA's power. And I don't know how they how they amassed this power, but they have it. And, 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 and the Republicans are really showing themselves to be total, totally bogus on this. Right. Because first, the argument was, well, the vacancy should be left open until a new president is elected because, you know, a Republican win in November would be a drastic shift. So we shouldn't let President Obama do his job while he is still president. Right. Totally absurd idea. Election year Supreme Court nominations and confirmations are common. But fine, that's there. It's a stupid argument, but it's their argument. God damn it. But now. Even if Hillary Clinton wins in November, Mitch McConnell is saying, no, we still wouldn't go forward with the confirmation hearings because the NRA is still going to be opposed to Merrick Garland, whether a Democrat or a Republican wins in November. And this all, by the way, comes down to two cases that Merrick Garland was involved in, Parker v. District of Columbia uh, and NRA v. Reno, where uh, apparently Garland's decisions weren't pro-gun enough for the NRA. This is an embarrassment, right? Grasping at straws. We just have to hope that it backfires on Republicans. And we sort of know because we know Republican voters, there's a good chance it won't backfire, but hopefully it will. Yeah. The NRA, uh, masterful 
at, at purchasing politicians. Yep. And those politicians are going to make sure that there's a pro-gun Supreme Court justice. It's what is going on. Mitch McConnell knows exactly where his bread is buttered. Let's dispel with this notion that Mitch McConnell doesn't know where his bread is buttered. We're in a race to the bottom here. It's a race to the bottom. Hark now heed the call. It's a race to the bottom. Inequality for all. Five hundred people controlling half the nation's wealth, while millions can afford the cost of basic health. President Obama and his supporters, which are almost all the Democratic uh, senators and uh, progressive groups, progressive groups in Washington. Tell us that we should all go along with Merrick Garland. What a brilliant selection. Uh, he puts the Republicans on the spot uh, since he uh, largely agrees with them. I thought the whole point of the Democratic president was to make sure we got a Supreme Court justice who didn't agree with the Republicans. I don't find that to be a brilliant move. I don't find it to be clever, and I don't find it to be interesting. Now, there's been so much press around that now um, that the Republicans are backpedaling because they have to. Orrin Hatch had said... He is the best nominee that the Republicans could hope for from a Democratic president. That's pretty strong language. Now Orrin Hatch saying, no, 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 we won't even give him a hearing. So I know, I know that, that was, that's Obama's strategy. Ha ha, we'll make the Republicans look bad. But what if they call your bluff and they just say, oh, thanks for giving us a largely conservative Supreme Court justice. We'll take it. Okay, now for the moment being, they're not doing that. Uh, and I will show you exactly how conservative uh, Garland is in a second. First, uh, Mitch McConnell uh, in this political landscape says, no, 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 Barack Obama calling this judge a moderate doesn't make him a moderate. This judge would move the court dramatically to the left. <laughs> oh, would he? Would he? Well, it's funny because they asked John Kasich, a Republican running for president, whether uh, you know he would not only uh, meet with Garland if he was a senator, but would he nominate him? So Republicans not going to nominate Obama's pick, or is he? Watch. On the Supreme Court pick, Merrick Garland, should the Senate at least hold hearings? The fact is, I never thought the president should have sent it up. I think they can go ahead and have a meeting with him. Uh, you know, the senators can meet with this gentleman. And then maybe ultimately, when I, if I'm president, which I think we've got a good shot at being, maybe he'll be under consideration for the Supreme Court. Well, you know, he received, uh, you know, overwhelming support, I think, even from Senator Hatch. So, of course, we'd think about it. He says he would think about it if he were president. He just said it twice this Sunday on the talk shows that he would consider nominating. A Republican running for president would consider the same guy as Obama. Is there any chance he would have said that if Garland was actually progressive, actually a liberal? Zero percent chance. Now, even so, they have one position of Garland's that's uh, progressive. He once ruled against the NRA. So Kasich had to backpedal today and walk those comments back. I mean, I, he voted against the NRA. No, no, of course I'd pick somebody else. Okay. When you can only find one progressive position, that's a bit of a problem if the president is still pretending to be progressive. Okay, now, let's get you the details of his conservative positions. And there are many. I've just picked three here, um, ranging in severity. 
First one is uh, the least offensive. It's his view on marijuana. Uh, Merrick Garland, uh, as uh, Jacob Solom at Reason.com explains, uh, the Supreme Court nominee whom President Obama announced yesterday, this was obviously written a little while ago, sided with the Drug Enforcement Administration a few years ago in a case involving the reclassification of marijuana, a fact that has led to some grumbling among drug policy reformers. So uh, he thinks uh, marijuana should be a Schedule One drug. Now, to be fair, he doesn't. He thinks the DAA, DEA has the right to declare that. So they explain, but the decision that Garland joins says uh, more about the DEA's broad discretion under the Controlled Substances Act than it does about his eagerness to defend pot prohibition. Now, this is one of the many cases he wind up winds up on the side of conservatives, but they do have a good case that we really don't know where he stands on marijuana. He's just saying the government has enough discretion that they could claim that marijuana has no medical purpose at all, and it should be uh, the most severely regulated drug. Okay, so we're just warming up. Now, let's go to the most important issue, which is Citizens United. So the unlimited money in politics. Uh, Bernie Sanders says, yes, that would be a litmus test for him. Apparently, it isn't for Barack Obama. I mean, really, we're going to have a Democratic president that picks a Supreme Court nominee that's going to allow more money into politics? The answer is apparently yes. Yes. So uh, on uh, BillMoyers.com, John Light wrote this. There's one very important case on Garland's record, however, that gives reformers pause. Speech Now versus FEC, a decision that along with Citizens United made possible the current proliferation of super PACs. Joy. Uh, Citizens United did away with limits on how much third-party groups could spend so long as they didn't coordinate with campaigns. Speech Now allowed donors to give as much as they wanted to political action committees, again, so long as those groups didn't coordinate with the campaigns. The decisions both decided in 2010 were the two sides of the same coin. Garland joined the unanimous decision on speech now written by Judge David B. Santel. So, he agreed with Citizens United, and he actually put it on steroids a little bit by saying, you can give unlimited money to super PACs. This is where the apologists come in and go, yeah, well, he seems to have voted horrifically in that case. But he had no choice. Citizens United was already decided in 2010, and he had to follow precedent. By the way, if he's on the court, how do you know he's not going to use the same exact argument? Say, I, I have to follow precedent. That's what I've always done. In fact, you guys said that I follow precedent. I'm following precedent. I'm going to follow Citizens United. How do you know he's not going to do that? By the way, he's likely to do that based on his record. Okay, but one of the things they said was he had no choice. Oh, really? Was there no other side to this case? Did the government not present a case? No, I looked into it. It turns out they did. And here we go uh, to Damon Root at Reason.com. He says, notably, the D.C. Circuit rejected the FEC's attempt to distinguish Citizens United, which struck down an expenditure limit from the Speech Now case, which dealt with a contribution limit. In other words, the D.C. Circuit had an opportunity to accept the federal government's narrowing analysis of Citizens United, and it rejected that narrowing analysis among the judges who joined the D.C. Circuit's opinion in SpeechNow.org versus FEC was Merrick Garland. So in Citizens United, they said, hey, these PACs can spend as much as they like. They didn't say they could raise as much as they like. In Speech Now, Garland votes, no, 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 they could also raise as much money as they want. So when they go to Sheldon Adelson or the Koch brothers or George Soros or anyone, they don't have to say, hey, I could only take 5,000 from you. I could only take 10,000, whatever the numbers. 
They can take an unlimited amount of money. That in some ways is even more problematic. It's not like he didn't have a choice. He did. He could have easily made that distinction. He chose not to. He apparently agrees, yes, there are no limits to money in politics. This is the guy that liberals want on the Supreme Court? My answer to that is, hell no. Do I support Garland because Obama picked him? No, no. Should you support him? Under no circumstances should you support him. If the Republicans want to do uh, liberals a favor and block him, great, block him. Okay, fantastic. I'm happy to have that. If this guy makes it onto the court, and there's an excellent chance he will, he is going to vote with the conservatives, and then they're going to say, oh, who, nobody could have seen this coming. And am I going to shove this particular video down their throat? Goddamn right I am. Now, you, a lot of people are now making the excuse, oh, no, 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 it's all strategic. You wouldn't understand, Cenk, he's playing three-dimensional chess Obama. He never actually wants this guy to go on the court. It's just for politics. Oh, really? Then why did Obama have him on a short list all the way back in 2010? Wait, I thought this was just because, oh, the unique circumstances now, the Republicans hold the Senate, yada, 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 and it's an election year. No, 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 Obama's always like this guy. That's why he's been on his short list. Why? People can't figure it out. Oh, wait, is Obama dumb? Is he weak? No, you're missing it. He isn't progressive. He agrees with Garland. Now, even though Citizens United is by far the most important issue to the country, to myself, to anyone who's paying attention to politics, there's actually one uh, decision he's made, or it's actually a series of decisions, uh, that is even more offensive. How could it be even more offensive? Well, I'll show you. First, Charlie Savage uh, writes in the New York Times generally, as one wartime detention case after another has pitted state security powers against individual rights, Garland has often, though not always, deferred to the government. Well, it's really hard to find the cases where he did not defer to the government. Uh, now, you might think, well, okay, he was a prosecutor, he defers to the government, not a big deal. Wait, well, no, no, no. When you get into the details, you realize it's a giant deal. It's a huge deal. So let me explain. Um, now we go to Just Security. Steve Vladek writing there. Uh, moreover, they explain, Judge Garland was the one Democratic appointee not to dissent from the D.C. Circuit's refusal in Abda to rehear in bank its flawed opinion in Kiamba 2, which held that detainees had no right to notice or hearing before being transferred to countries in which they might credibly fear torture or other forms of cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment. So there were some legalese in there. Let me break it down for you. All the other Democratic appointees go, no, 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 you're not allowed to transfer uh, these detainees to a place where they're going to get tortured. Garland disagrees. Says, yeah, yeah, go ahead, transfer them to a place where they're going to get tortured. What do I care? That's his ruling. It's Again, it's not the apologists are like, oh, he had no choice. No, he had all the choice in the world. All the other Democratic appointees voted the other way. He didn't have to vote for torture. He chose to do that. He broke with the other Democratic appointees to say, no, no, please, you're allowed, government's allowed to do whatever they want. You want to transfer him to have that guy get his, you know, uh, arms or whatever. I mean, there's a thousand different torture tactics, right? Go ahead, have at it, Hoss. Okay, we're not at the worst one yet. Here we go. Habeas corpus. Habeas corpus is the, a philosophy that not only goes back to our Constitution, goes all the way back to Magna Carta. That says you've got to present the body. That's what it means. It means if the government has someone, they have to actually try him. They have to bring him before a judge. They can't just make him disappear. Because if you allow the government to do that, that is as tyrannical as it gets. Habeas corpus is the 
the core of what people call Western civilization, what I call any civilization, okay, he's not against habeas corpus, is he? Let's find out. Again, Damon Root at Reason.com. Garland voted in support of George W. Bush administration's controversial war on terrorism policies in the Guantanamo detainee case Al-Oda versus United States, in which Garland joined the majority opinion holding that enemy combatants held as detainees at the U.S. military facility at Guantanamo Bay were not entitled to habeas corpus protections. The U.S. Supreme Court ultimately overruled that decision, holding in the landmark case Boumedin versus Bush that Guantanamo detainees do enjoy habeas corpus rights. The Supreme Court, which is fundamentally conservative, is more liberal than Garland is. Now, Kennedy flipped in that decision. It was a 5-4 decision. But they said, do, do the detainees of the United States of America has detained, no matter where they are, do they have habeas corpus rights? Of course they do. You can't make people disappear. That's tyranny. Garland disagreed. And again, there were people who voted on the other side. He chose not to join them. He decided, no, 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 no. The U.S. government, if it wants to, can make anybody disappear. They do not have habeas corpus rights. They do not have them. And I'm supposed to support this guy? Because somebody with a D next to their name said that that was the party line? Hell no is not strong enough. If he was proposed by a Republican president, I'd want to filibuster him. Doesn't believe in habeas corpus rights. He's for more money in politics. And he could hardly find a liberal position he has. But Obama appointed him. Democrats in Washington want him approved. Fuck no. Fuck no. Vote no. Any real liberal or progressive wouldn't want this guy walking by the Supreme Court, let alone being in the Supreme Court. We just heard clips featuring Counterspin on the curious way that some define a balanced court. We, the podcast, hosted by Representative Keith Ellison, discussing the importance of the Supreme Court and why the right has been organizing around it for decades. Tom Hartman laid out the two possible lines of thought behind the new nomination to the court. The Young Turks showed how conservatives should actually be thrilled with this choice, which should give every progressive pause on the idea of supporting him. Counterspin pointed out that Merrick Garland is quite likely to help maintain many of the injustices in our justice system. David Pakman discussed how beholden the GOP is to the NRA and business interests. And finally, the Young Turks laid out an expansive case for why Merrick Garland would be a terrible addition to the court. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. This is uh, Greg from New Hampshire. I was just calling about the voting rights episode, I just wanted to weigh in. I was thinking about how, you know, when I was in high school and growing up, I was never taught about how does voting work? How do the primaries work? How does the actual electoral college work? Um, I don't think I actually learned that until after I was in college and had to kind of look up this information myself. 
And I think that a lot of my peers are probably in the same boat where they were never they were never taught this. Um, and that kind of seems like a fundamental part of um, American, or should be a fundamental part of American education. And now primary season, I'm kind of wondering why wasn't that a part of my education and why still the primaries and the caucuses and everything, um, the different rules between the two parties seems like such a confusing and complex system that I wish I knew more about and I wish it wasn't so hard to, to get the information. So that's it. I'm just you know curious, uh, maybe you have a take on why is this um, absent, at least from my education? I don't know if that's a, a thing across the board. Thanks very much. Thanks for everything. Bye. Hey, James. Colin from Cleveland. A little behind of the episodes, and I was going to respond to what Patrick from Dallas uh, was talking about. He talked about uh, having a visceral reaction when he heard the word socialism, and I understand what he means. I, too, am in my 40s, and I was a child in the 80s, and we were taught of, you know, the bad Soviets, you know, the godless atheists, yada, yada, yada. We, and as a child, I bought in to all this propaganda because as far as we knew as children that you weren't allowed to believe in a god even so again we all know now that that couldn't be any further from the truth they weren't shutting churches in in uh, the soviet union so getting back to what he said he went on to explain about the soviet union and communist china and you know the atrocities uh carried out by Pol Pot, and I'm noticing that almost all the reference points he says are communist, not socialist. This is a big problem. It's the lack of education that we've all had in this country. We were just told that socialism is communism, and it's the same thing. Gee, anyone who really reads into this knows that it's not. Now, going on to say how no one in this country has the idea to work hard to benefit someone else so socialism, socialism wouldn't work. I have a counter-argument. If socialism or socialist programs wouldn't work because no one wants to work hard to profit for someone else, why don't we privatize fire departments in this country? Why don't we privatize the police? I think what a lot of us need to do is really embrace the fact that we have some socialist properties in our country as it stands. We did have private fire departments in the in the birth of this country in the late 1800s and the early 1900s. That's why that's where you get the term fire company from. And there are historic stories recorded, especially in New York, where two different fire companies would show up to a fire and basically start bidding with the property owner to see who's going to put the fire out. In the meantime, this person's property is burning up, literally. So obviously there are some aspects in life where capitalism just doesn't work. So I just, I don't like when people say socialism won't work, socialism won't. It might not work in every aspect, but I don't like to hear it vilified. And I just think it's important that whenever I hear anyone gloss over it so wide brushed I feel the need to stop in and maybe put up a couple thinking points for people to realize that you can't just dumb it down 
into such oversimplified terms. Again, I don't have all the answers to what will and won't work. He did mention, you know, regulating capitalism, and that is something I would support with him 500%. We definitely need regulations. And I, I myself don't know about getting rid of capitalism altogether. But this unfettered capitalism where regulations are bastardized has taken this country right down the tubes. So, sorry to go on so long. Love the show, Jake. Bye. Hey, Jay, it's Alan from Connecticut calling again. Um, just listening to the latest episode regarding climate change. I've done a lot of work myself in re- increasing my recycling. I bought 26 solar panels, put them on the roof. So basically, I have no electricity that I'm paying for. I've kind of worked that out, and I, I don't even dry my clothes anymore using a clothes dryer. I hang them up. So I've done a lot of work on that, but I'm always struggling with the recycling aspects of things. These are things I can do on a day-to-day basis. You know, I've, I've cut the times that I go out to dinner, and when I go out to dinner and there's leftovers, before I actually take leftovers, I ask what they're going to put it in. If it's styrofoam, I just, you know, it's not worth taking it home because then I have a styrofoam container I don't know what to do with. At least if it's aluminum, I can recycle it. But I'm wondering what other resources people are using for recycling or finding recycling or handling the stuff that is difficult to recycle. About two years ago, you had the water bottle piece that I put at the bottom of my emails to share that information. And uh, and I'm always struggling with that as well. I mean, I don't buy water bottles anymore. I constantly use the same one over and over and over again. But how do we, on a day-to-day basis, reduce and recycle and what is good to recycle? You know, I do have an oil furnace. I do have a wood-burning stove, so is it better to swap out and and burn more wood so that I burn less oil? I did that this year, I did that last year. Am I really making a difference? Am I really having an impact on the environment on a meaningful way, or am I just swapping one, one carbon issue for a different carbon issue? Anyway, those are my two thoughts. Hope things are well. Thank you. Have a great day. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who help gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, I just want to respond to Alan from Connecticut, and I certainly invite anyone to call in with your own thoughts on best practices for recycling and reducing waste and energy consumption and and all of those things he touched on. I I know a lot of people are going to have opinions about that, so please feel free to to leave those on the voicemail line. The one part of what he said that I, I feel like I have a pretty decent amount of confidence that I can respond to accurately is his question about burning wood versus oil. And so oil fossil fuel. It was, you know, plant and animal matter from millions of years ago, below the earth's surface, became oil, we sucked it out, we burned it, and that releases CO2 into the air. So that is terrible. You don't get much worse than that. Now, wood also contains carbon dioxide. You know, trees are made partially of carbon. You burn wood, it releases CO2 into the atmosphere. That is definitely true. But wood is not a fossil fuel. The big difference is that trees suck carbon out of the atmosphere as they grow, and so then when they die and either decompose naturally or are burned, 
that CO2 is going to be released back into the air in one way or another. But at the same time, more trees, hopefully, if the forest is being sustainably harvested and a, a next generation of trees are being planted at the same time, then as trees grow, they suck carbon out of the atmosphere and as trees decompose or are burned for heat or energy or whatever, that CO2 is released, but at least there's a cycle in place, whereas with burning oil, there is no cycle. Or maybe more accurately, the cycle takes hundreds of millions of years to complete, whereas growing trees only takes a few years. So that's the big difference. Now, there are options that are better than wood-burning stoves, and I know this from a story that goes way back for me, almost 10 years now. Uh, many of you know that I used to work for a climate change nonprofit, and that the the guy who ran that organization, Mike Tidwell, he's also an author, before he was my boss, he was actually my landlord. And so I lived at his house for a few months and learned all about all of the systems that he had put in place to retrofit his house, very similar to what Alan is describing. He put a bunch of solar panels on his roof for electricity and hot water. He traded out all of his appliances that used a lot of energy and replaced them with super efficient ones. And then one of his big purchases was to replace his oil burning and radiator system for heat and replace that with not a wood burning stove, but a corn burning stove. Because it turns out, when you look at uh, all the physics of how trees grow and how much carbon they suck in versus how much they release when they're burned, when you compare that to organically raised no-till corn, turns out corn is much more carbon efficient. So that's what he ended up opting for instead of wood. So you can go way down the rabbit hole into a bunch of details about the specific ways in which organic corn can be grown. And if you till the soil, you're actually releasing carbon in, into the atmosphere during the growing process. And then when you grow the corn, it sucks some carbon out of the atmosphere. You know, But if you get too far into the details, I'm, I'm going to get to a place where I am less confident that I know what I'm talking about. But the big picture is that wood or corn any of those things is going to be much better than fossil fuels because there is a cycle involved. And if you want to learn more about the way Mike set up his corn stove, he wrote about it in his book, The Ravaging Tide. Uh, if you are interested in corn stoves or wood stoves on your own, I mean, there is an enormous amount of information online. Just start Googling low carbon corn stove, uh, you know, organic corn, uh, wood pellet stoves, like all those sorts of things will get you into the world of understanding uh, how to lower your carbon output while still staying warm in the winter. Now, like I said, I would love to hear comments from anyone who pr probably knows a lot more about all this stuff than I do. Uh, so keep the comments coming in. The number again, 202-999-3991. And that is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we put out there. We share a lot of what goes into the show 
on our social media feeds. And so if you are subscribed, you can get those and turn right around and share them with your networks, Uh, especially on Facebook. You can set our content to be seen first by you so that you can have it pop up right there and you can love it, share it, post it, do whatever you want to do. And then for details on the show itself, including links, all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame how we get so trained we can see past our own sad stories and wonder what we're missing we can see past our own sad stories and forget how to listen we can see past our own sad stories and wonder what we're doing can see past Stories and forget who it is before.